listening to a nickel's worth with keaton nichols hey everybody welcome in it's another episode of a nickel's worth thank you for joining me here on the show i'm your host keaton nichols you can catch me everywhere on social media at keaton d nichols that's at keaton d nichols make sure you're following the show as well that's at a nickel's worth that's at a nickel's worth you can find us everywhere uh, Facebook, Spotify, and Anchor as well if you want to catch up on old episodes. And you know we go live every Monday, Wednesday, Friday right here from my social media pages. I appreciate the folks who are going to be joining us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter tonight. Make sure you leave your comments and questions. I would love to hear from you. Love to hear the dialogue and the great ideas that many of you as listeners have had out there. I appreciate you, and I want that to continue tonight. So please, please feel free. Um, it's July the 27th, Monday, July the 27th. I hope everyone had a great weekend. Mine was okay, but we don't have to talk about that. I hope you had a great weekend this weekend. Um, so usually I, I kind of start, um, and I've been starting at least the last couple of weeks with kind of a crazy COVID stat of the day. I don't necessarily have a stat today as so much as a story, um, involving major league baseball, which some of you might have heard about at some point today. So we'll get to that in just a moment, but I did want to start today, um, talking about uh, the commemoration services for Cong- uh, Congressman John Lewis, um, who died last week, and, and many of his uh, memorial services were happening um, starting on Friday, even going up through, as I'm still speaking now here on Monday night. Um, and I had wrote that the, the watching a lot of these services and the, the coverage, rather, more so than the services, the coverage of the services made me somewhat uncomfortable a bit to watch, in a sense. And people wonder, well, what made you uncomfortable about it? I mean, this is John Lewis's uh, uh, memorial services. This is usually a time when a lot of media outlets and a lot of other folks uh, start to, you know, uh, contextualize exactly what John Lewis meant to their lives, um, what his impact was on this country as a, as a congressman, as an activist, as a civil rights activist. Before that, he, he, he was a, a speaker on the March on Washington alongside Dr. King. Um, there, there's, there's been a lot that John Lewis has done in his life um, that you can say are positives, are things that things that very well could have impacted um, the the very culture of this country. All those things are very true. But the the sort of internal struggle that I had watching this was I I just kept thinking to myself if all of these people, all of these people that I'm I'm I'm, I'm hearing now, uh, older people, young people alike, people that have lived and and worked alongside John Lewis or covered John Lewis in the news, all these people were saying that he was so great. And that he was so loved and so revered on both sides of the aisle, as Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi had mentioned, um, and, and, and others had kind of backed up that sort of uh, assertion that he was just such a great man. And he had done so many great things and his sacrifices were so great for this country that he is an American hero. I had trouble with them sort of contextualizing his life like this because... While I acknowledge that John Lewis certainly did some incredible and great things in his life while living in America, that he was far from what America considers a hero during the course of his life. For many Americans, especially black Americans, especially black Americans that might have lived in the South or in Georgia, he was every bit and more of the hero being described in the memorial services this weekend. But to the majority of Americans... To the majority of Americans, while John Lewis was still alive, 
He was a problem. He was a nuisance. He was in the way. He was seen as a political troublemaker, if you will. And they did not accept him with these big, wide, open arms that I'm seeing everyone accepting him now uh, in his death. And it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable that we like to talk about the fact that John Lewis survived beatings by the very same system that he became a part of as a congressman 20 some years later. That it was so weird to me to watch the Georgia state troopers escorting his body across the Ed Edmund Pettus Bridge, by the way, that totally needs renamed, but that's subject for a different time. Watching state Georgia state troopers carry the body of John Lewis across the bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where Bloody Sunday occurred where he was beat within an inch of his life, to think about this, that's the same group, not the same individuals, of course, but the same group that was responsible for handing out those beatings on John Lewis and all those others that protested that day. And all those, uh, and all the times that they were beaten, uh, continually beaten, and, and sprayed with water hoses, had dogs sicked on them. Kids, not just John Lewis, everybody. I can't separate those two things in my mind. I can't say to myself, America clearly views John Lewis as a hero when they beat the hell out of him when he was resisting and fighting the very things that we call him a hero for today. I can't accept that in my mind. It's still a little bit too weird for me. I think that those that are going to be studying this kind of thing in the future, when they go back and they look at the life and legacy of John Lewis... They're going to hear about a man who was very well liked, as I heard this past weekend, uh, not just in Congress, but in the entire country that he was liked and respected in the entire country. But I think that takes away. I think the beatings are a little bit too important to leave out of that story. He was not an American hero because he decided to step outside of some, you know, normal situation and be become just greater and bigger than what the moment called for. He what he was doing was fighting for his humanity. And there were tons of people who looked like him who were fighting for the very same thing. They didn't do it because they wanted to be revered as a great American hero. He was doing it because he might not have survived otherwise. And, and millions of other African-Americans from then on might not have survived either if it wasn't for the sacrifices that John Lewis had or that the, the John Lewis made rather and the things that he went through. Let's talk about that. He did great things, but he did great things within the context of a clearly broken and an intentionally broken and racist system. If we don't acknowledge that he had to jump over her, uh, we acknowledge rather that he had to jump over hurdles. However, we don't acknowledge those actual hurdles. The, the hurdles was the, was the country, it was the system. It's the system that we still are a part of today. And to, and to sort of contextualize his life as though he was this man that everyone respected and that we all loved what his sacrifice was is difficult for me. It's difficult for me when I think about him and every everybody else who was black who had to, to sacrifice and who had to fight uphill against the system uh, that they were very much so a part of. They were citizens in the system. It's not people from some other country that invaded and demanded respect. No. Sir, U.S. citizens and the United States has waged war on its own citizens. And we want to call the people that survived that war heroes. I, it just blows my mind. 
It absolutely blows my mind. Um, I wasn't around during the American Civil Rights era, the 50s, the 60s, let's say. I wasn't alive during that period of time. But when I speak to, to elders who were alive during that time, they'll tell you. Martin Luther King, just as a, a name that I'm pulling here, it's obviously many others I can use here, but Martin Luther King was not universally liked by everyone. Not everyone was down with what Martin Luther King was putting down. Not everyone agreed that that was the way to go or that, th that these were the proper actions to take. However, I think if you look at Martin Luther King now, he's he's like up there in that sainthood of, of, of individuals that we consider to be just like untouchable in this world. Mother Teresa, Gandhi, um, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela. These are like the greats. These are not perfect individuals, but these are like the greats of the world. And I remember that like growing up, I don't know if anyone else had the same sort of, you know, feeling too, or the same sort of context when learning about Martin Luther King and some of the other high ranking civil rights uh, leaders of the time. Is that when I was younger, I used to think to myself, wow, this Martin Luther King guy, everybody must have liked him. He goes he goes in the streets and he talks to everybody and he's saying the right things. He, th these are things that we acknowledge as right now, not back then they weren't right. But as a kid, whenever I'm trying to understand all of this. It was difficult to see why exactly was he a hero? You can't you can't even fully understand why someone like this is a hero until you understand the context of what they had to overcome. And I think when you consider that context of what they had to overcome, it, it gets eerily similar. It's, it starts to line up eerily similar to the way that we're doing business now. And that freaks a lot of people out. To say that a man like John Lewis sacrificed as much as he did, and many others like him, 60 years ago, and has been doing so fighting every single day since then and before then. Yet this country remains exactly the same as it was in many instances, as it as it was when John Lewis began to fight. That's what becomes uncomfortable about this. If we acknowledge that the that, that the culture that John Lewis had to overcome in order to become this great man, if we acknowledge that culture, then we also must acknowledge that it's not too too dissimilar to what we're living through now. I think John Lewis was a great man. I never knew him personally, but from from his accomplishments and from what he has done, I think what he has accomplished has been incredible. Incredible. But I think until this until we as a country have acknowledged and have disassociated ourselves with past cultures and behaviors in this country, I don't think until then we can fully con fully contextualize a man like John Lewis's life in full. I just don't think that we can do it until then. We're going to be tiptoeing around certain uncomfortable truths about the era uh, that John Lewis grew up in. That's just my two cents on John Lewis. I had to get that out real quick. Let's get to uh, I did have a comment on the Instagram. You can leave your comments to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Keaton D. Nichols. That's how you follow me at Keaton D. Nichols and check out the live show. Um, if you're watching this on repeat, uh, all hail the king. She says, I agree wholeheartedly. It's so disgusting. I hated seeing his casket go over the bridge. And uh, I'm, I'm glad I wasn't alone here. I, I was really unsure about how to you know, sort of get these feelings out because I don't want to diminish, of course, the life and legacy of John Lewis. What he did was absolutely amazing. But I think it's almost like he wouldn't have had to be amazing. It wouldn't have had to do those amazing things if it wasn't for the oppressive, oppressive culture um, that was so pervasive in this country at the time.
And I just don't think that we did a good enough job and we and we continually don't do a thorough or a good enough job at making sure that folks understand that in addition to the man's greatness, understanding that the man had to be great. In a sense, he had to be great because it was life and death. It's amazing. It's amazing. Please study up on the life and legacy of John Lewis and, and his career. There's a number of great books and documentaries um, and things on John Lewis. I highly implore people to to go check those out. Um, and again, don't just read about the heroism, but read what he was saving everyone from. In a sense, uh, I appreciate the comment. That's all hail the king. She also says it doesn't diminish it. It brings to light why he was amazing. I agree. He had no choice because because of, uh, of the depths of racism. And, and so many of us are 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 painted into that same corner. We have no choice. It's what we have to fight for every day. It's not a trend, as I said, that we can dip in and out of, you know, um, I, I, I did think, by the way, uh, that there was a tweet from Roland Martin that I thought was particularly like on point for this. And I'll wrap um, this section with that. Um, and it helps us kind of, like I, like I said, kind of contextualize exactly what's going on. And, and Roland Martin tweeted a little bit earlier today. He said, reminder, Americans didn't like John Lewis when he was protesting with SNCC. Americans didn't like Ali when he refused to go to Vietnam. Americans didn't like Kaepernick when he took a knee for police brutality. Pay attention to that one. Uh, freedom fighters don't do stuff to be liked. They do it for justice. Well said, Roland. Well said. I couldn't have said it any better myself. Let's give these people their flowers while they're still here. If you want to wait until it's politically advantageous, until the situation has calmed down, then you're not really making a bold political statement, are you? Anyhow, let me know what you think in the comments section um, at Keaton D. Nichols at a Nicholsworth um, as well. Even if you're watching this video uh, on the replay, please make sure you leave your comments. I'd love to hear from you. All right. So, um, on to our next story here. You guys know I've been, you know, carping on this unemployment benefits thing um, that I believe Congress has kind of been dragging their feet as they usually do. However, this is an unusual situation, right? Like, obviously, I don't have to explain the depths and how, you know, uh, uh, you know, severe and serious that the coronavirus is and also the impact, the economic impact. Uh, obviously, there's been a, almost 150,000 people at this point that have died from coronavirus here in the United States. That dwarfs any other country's numbers and statistics, by the way, um, even countries that are much bigger and smaller than us. But um, also, you have this huge dearth of jobs, right? Like tons of jobs have been uh, uh, have been lost, I guess is the proper way to say it. Um, companies that are deciding that, look, I don't we don't have the money to pay you anymore. And so this creates this huge economic rift that we've been dealing with uh, over the last several months. Really, I mean, this this crisis started really in, in March. It's obviously before that, but the economic crisis, many of it hit many of us in March. And so we're now in August, in July here, we're dealing with four months of economic anxiety, economic uh, uh, insecurity, if you will. In a capitalist system, I don't always like a capitalist system. I don't like all the rules and regulations, but, it, but hey, we live here. We live in one, so we got to deal with it. And right now, this is not the way to deal with it. So Democrats, I guess a few weeks ago, had proposed um, a plan effectively that would uh, give Americans, small businesses, schools, other factors of the American fiber, the American system, about four trillion dollars in aid and economic assistance. Four trillion. That's with a T, folks. 
$4 trillion in economic aid. Uh, they sent that over to the Republicans in the Senate. That's the Democratic House proposed that plan. They sent it over to the Republicans in the Senate, and they were like, nah, no, 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 no. No way. No way. The Republicans are big on small government. <laughs> A little bit of irony there, but they're big on small government. Um, they're not really big fans of giving, if you will, Americans who uh, are stressed, especially stressed by the by their unemployment during this time. They're not big fans of giving them any extra money. They hated this whole extra expanded six hundred dollars uh, weekly unemployment benefit as a part of state benefits that unemployed folks were already getting. Made them uncomfortable. Oh, no, we can't give the people resources that they need. How dare they? So the Republicans, they had to come up with their own proposal effectively. Uh, they came out with that today. On Friday, we got confirmation that they were going to release this thing, you know, in a couple days once they got the final details sorted out. And we got the plans for it today. Got the GOP proposal today. So uh, they obviously, no surprise here, they want to reduce that expanded $600 a, uh, a week unemployment benefit as a part of a number of things that they're going to be doing. Now, I should take note before we get too deep into this. This is just a proposal. So this is not the final plan. This has not been passed. This is not going to be law in the land in a couple of days. This isn't going anywhere for or for a little while. And that's also a part of the problem. Uh, the GOP proposal. This is according to the hill dot com. The GOP proposal, according to Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, will transition to payments equal to roughly 70 percent of an individual's previous wages. We'll come back around to that. Uh, states and GOP lawmakers have warned that it could take weeks, if not months. Get this. To be able to switch to unemployment benefits that would be scalable based upon a person's wage. We'll also come back around to that. The plan will provide one additional $600 per week payment. It would then provide $200 per week. It's a big difference. To give states time to transition to the wage match. Yikes. So with proposals seemingly this far away from each other, one from the House Democrats and the other one from the Senate Republicans, the way that our system works, as you may know, is, of course, these two groups have to come to common terms on this. They got to be able to say, look, we agree on the same proposal, the same rules, the same numbers before we pass this thing out, before we actually hand out any money. It's just the way that the system works. And being that the Democrats have proposed $4 trillion and the Republicans proposed $1 trillion, you can see that there's a lot of negotiating that is needed to get back to the middle in that case. Now, uh, a wise person would say, well, look, the average of, of $1 and $4, million, uh, $4 trillion is $2.5 Why don't they just come to the middle and say $2.5 trillion spending package, get all the particulars out of the way, and send it out? That'd be very simple, but unfortunately, it's not going to happen like that. A lot of uh, uh, politicos, if you will, anticipate that this won't be uh, even brought to a vote until sometime in mid-August. That's in two or three weeks, depending on how you look at it. Until then, until they get this thing straight, there are still going to be Americans that are struggling to A, pay their bills, and B, find work. And that second one is pretty important uh, according if you consider all the features and factors of this plan. See, there's a big focus on the Republicans, as I mentioned before. Republicans are typically a group of, of, of representatives that support the idea of less government, less government checks, less big government telling you what to do, more freedom and, you know, America and all that other good stuff. Never mind the person who is atop the GOP. We're not talking about him tonight. Um, and so we won't go there. But for the, for the rest of the party, uh, 
This is generally and typically what you've expected from Republicans for the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years uh, or so. And so there's a big focus on incentivizing more Americans to try and find work during this time instead of, as they see it, staying home and collecting money from the government. Ha, convenient argument that we've oftentimes seen the Republicans pull out of their magic hat of wasting time tricks uh, in Congress. This sort of moral fight, I talked about this in my last episode, was sort of uh, started, it was sort of weakened, if you will, at the beginning by this idea that those that are on government assistance are oftentimes the subject of ridicule from people who do have jobs, who do receive paychecks. We oftentimes look down on these people. We say, oh, well, you received government payments? What a loser. I'm out here working hard for my check and you big pile of lazy bones over here uh, eating bonbons, collecting checks from the government. That's how a lot of people view people who are on government assistance. There's a big factor here um, that, that it's, it's like deservability. I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm making it a word now. Deservability that we that we consider when when thinking about this subject of is somebody should we be giving this person money? Is this person worthy of receiving government funds? That worthiness of receiving those government funds is not based upon some sort of algorithm or some sort of number or some sort of hard line that that notion about whether or not a person should receive government benefits or not is based upon this are they deserving of it sort of idea and when you start doing that you start characterizing the people that receive government assistance not as people who have low funds in their bank account but you start to perceive them as certain groups of people certain people that you might expect to be on government uh, assistance certain identities certain demographic groups if you will that can be associated with government assistance. And whenever you contextualize it like that, you're no longer talking about what people need and what people don't need. You're having a conversation about what people deserve and what people don't deserve. And let's not forget, I just got done talking about John Lewis, who, uh, of course, struggled his entire life to be just viewed as a normal, regular human being. And he had to get his butt beat multiple times within an inch of his life in some cases just for the idea that his life mattered. Not that it's better, as Michael Che said in his stand-up, or not that we're superior, just that it mattered. Okay, so you can see the issue here with sort of basing a system uh, for people who are in need based upon how much you like them, how much you respect them as a group or as a people. They're not going to get a fair shake. That's the plan here. If we strip away all the language behind this, and there's a lot of different factors in this GOP proposal. There also is, by the way, another $1,200 check that is supposed to be on the way to all Americans. Woot woot, right? The first $1,200 check since uh, maybe three and a half months ago, yeah? Be the only money that a lot of people have received during this time crazy there are still people who are backed up from unemployment their first round of unemployment claims right and so we're not talking about a particular type of person that needs this kind of money we're talking about people having low funds or no funds and they still need to find a way to live life for the next couple of weeks or months until we figure something else out uh, from an economic perspective that's the reality facing the situation right now 
However, the fight that we're about to see go on in Congress is going to, for the next two to three, four, maybe even more weeks, is going to be annoying to try and figure out what the number, what the final tally is going to be. And that's not going to be an economic sort of discussion. It'll be a deserving question, uh, 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 subject. But either way, uh, I, I can't get my eyes off this, this one line. This is killing me. Lawmakers, GOP lawmakers have warned that it could take weeks, if not months, to be able to switch to, an un, to unemployment benefits that would be scalable based on a person's wage. We have an archaic system uh, within many states that would have to be entirely revamped and overhauled in order to answer the in order to rather carry out this proposal of giving people approximately 70% of their previous wages we've got to develop a system that's able to identify what people's previous wages are and verify what people's previous wages are so that we can give them 70% of that as if there wasn't an economic crisis before the coronavirus. Now we're going to have to live at 70%. Many of us we are going to have to live at 70% of our previous wages. If life wasn't hard, let's take up the, the difficulty on that just a little bit. See if you can survive this. It's like Congress is putting us through, uh, you know, the, the temple of doom challenge. I mean, give us a break. Anyway, as I mentioned, this isn't the final proposal. We're going to be hearing a lot more on this over the next couple of weeks. Um, but when we think about our, our Congress people, oftentimes, like I said, we had this conversation a few months before elections and we said, well, what are these people? What have they done for me lately? Or why should we reelect this person? Or why should we support this party or that party? Pay attention to this kind of stuff. I'm not saying you have to know all the details of this. Most of the details of this proposal are going to be wiped out in a couple of weeks anyway. Right. You don't have to dig down into that. But let's pay attention to how uh, urgent our representatives are making this issue during a very urgent time. Let's see how urgent they're making this issue. My estimation, not not very urgent so far. And it's because of partisan politics, right? Like they're going to eventually come to a middle ground. We know that. That's the answer. But we can't fast forward to that because we got to go through this process now. Each side has to flex a little bit. Each side has to see how far they can reach in the pissing contest. Before we get to a number for aid for Americans that desperately need it. This is your Congress? These are your people? This is why people aren't excited about the election. This is why people aren't excited about their participation in politics. It sucks. A mess, though. A mess. Um, instead of $600 additional payments added on to state benefits, that number would be closer to 200 under the Republican proposal. Obviously, that's not a whole lot. Um... But the bigger part about this is, I think, about that part about it uh, is the jobs are not being recreated at the same pace and at the same fervent uh, nature in which they were lost. And it's one thing to incentivize Americans to go out and work and to go out and get a job. It's another thing to provide the support behind it that would be necessary for that kind of thing to happen. In other words, I'm saying if the government was proactive in this, if the government had instituted some sort of guidelines that said the coronavirus will be impacting us for the next X amount of weeks or months or indefinitely, whatever, and we are going to put the measures in place to ensure that our economy can support the people that live in it. That's one thing to say that, right? We are going to put forth the, the money, the funds that are needed for Americans to survive this time while being at home safe or while not putting themselves in harm's way. That's what America should be doing. 
Instead, what America has done is said, we are going to reduce the amount of payments that you get. We are going to threaten your very existence in this country by cutting off your finances uh, as a way of motivating you to get back to work. Never mind if the jobs don't exist. We expect you to get back to work anyway. Have fun. Man, this is like it's like survival. This is like freaking, uh, what's the book? Uh, Hunger Games. That's what this is like. These are our representatives. We have let this get to a very, very ugly place. Very, very ugly place. But anyway, over the next couple of weeks, we'll keep an eye on this. We'll keep we'll continue talking about the proposal as it shifts as they settle on some things and exactly how long it actually took for them to settle on this and to get something to get something done. Period. Incredible. Make sure you're leaving your comments in the comment section. We got Instagram, we got Facebook, we got Twitter, we got all types of things. Before I get into my final subject, let me read some of the comments that we got on our last subject. Joe Von Alford uh, comments in on the Twitter via Periscope. Shout out to Periscope on Twitter. He says, No one can live off an extra $200 per week. That's insane. Uh, excuse me. That's someone's phone bill. <laughs> it is. And honestly, it's like a family of four. Family, of, that's your phone bill. Congratulations. Um, I, I I just you know for this. Oh, I'm sorry. He goes on. Joe, let me finish Jovan's comments. He says, "Don't get me started on unemployment, which is very behind, uh, like weeks behind." Now, Jovan and I, you know, we had a conversation about this a couple of weeks ago, um, and just how flawed this system truly is, especially for those that really need it. There's still people waiting on their first check, folks. Here we are discussing the parameters of the second one, and folks haven't even received the first one. Folks have been laid off for months. 50 million jobs plus lost in this country. But the conversation is not about numbers. It's not about dollars and cents. It's about who is deserving of what. And what the Republicans have said with this proposal is that the people who have been receiving these funds don't deserve as much as they've been getting. If they, And they're also saying at the same time, if they receive less money, then they'll be more motivated to find jobs that, get this, are not there. What a world. Thank you for the comment, Jovan. Leela comments in and says, cool show, Keaton. Appreciate that, Leela. Appreciate you listening in. Um, let's see. Let's go to Tavon Parker. He comments in on the Facebook page. He says, how do you find work when you're trying to protect your friends and family from the virus? This is a this is a good question. Not only is this, it's a great question. Like, we, we've gotten so focused on this idea that we need to get back to work. We need to save ourselves economically. And that's what... I hate to use the word they because it sounds very ambiguous, but I think that's what a lot of people that are in power right now, especially Republicans, would like you to focus on. If, if we're so concerned about how we're going to put food on the table, I don't think we're going to be as concerned about whether uh, we are exposing ourselves to the virus, whether we're exposing others to the virus, things like that. There's a sort of background notion that says to me that there's a lot of folks in this country, Republicans, conservatives, uh, the man who shall not be named for this episode, I'm trying to keep him out of this, and many like people like anti-maskers and like conspiracy theorists and stuff like that. There's a lot of people like this that are pushing against this idea that the coronavirus is even dangerous. Does it, that it's even a threat. What is the purpose of this? I ask myself this whenever I see, I see these people on my Facebook or my Twitter or, or, or I just read the comment section. Ne- never read the comment section. But if you ever do, you just see droves and droves and droves of these people. I mean, how could you be so convinced that something so 
incredibly dangerous is nothing. It's all a part of the political belief that we we can live with this virus and that whatever happens in terms of casualties, losses, etc. can be absorbed all in the name of propping up that good old economy that we love in this country so much. We love this we love this economy so much that we're willing to watch our grandmas die just to make sure that we could buy shoes this weekend. We're going to see our our aunts and uncles struggle with this virus because we'd like to see restaurants and and, and public places uh, uh, opened up again. We're willing to risk contracting the coronavirus ourselves and spreading it to people that we love simply because $200 ain't enough. This ain't enough. Come on. Uh, Like, where are our priorities in this? When you start rearranging those priorities, it becomes very easy for for Republicans and anti-maskers, Trump people, etc. to slip in this idea that we'll be okay, we'll be fine. We don't need to be giving anybody any, any assistance. The country's fine, the economy's fine, just get a job. This could literally kill people. I'm sorry for getting, like, overpassionate, but, like, this quite literally could kill people. Not having enough is is a not having enough money rather not having enough in finances is a serious condition especially in an economic in a capitalist society man anyway i appreciate the comment t um amanda hamaday she comments in on the facebook as well she says and tell me how there's a count of four friends now who are making more now being on an unemployment than in their full-time job time to pay attention the crisis is bringing it to light to economic and economic problems that already existed yes it sucks and yes it's a huge mess what are we going to do stop giving billionaires our money uh for one vote what else what's next um yes huge problems uh with this i think i talked about it in my last show there was a uh Uh, I think it was a sandwich shop owner in Georgia um, who was complaining that the $600 bonus, if you will, you wouldn't even call it that, um, the $600 bonus from the federal government was discouraging people from applying to his job. Effectively, if these people stayed home, they would be earning approximately $15 an hour for about like a six hour workday. They had it worked out somehow like that, right? They would be earning about $15 an hour for about six hours worth of work by sitting at home and collecting this check as... uh, as being someone who's unemployed. Now, the interesting part of the article is that the store owner was all upset about this, but he was only paying his employees between $8.50 and $10.50 an hour. Yes, you can't compete with that, but maybe you should pay your workers more. There's a concept, right? (laughs) It all goes back to that sort of deserving sort of thing. I've always thought that raising the minimum wage was a great way to begin this conversation about relieving economic anxiety. Absolutely. But when we start having a conversation about raising the minimum wage, what does that devolve into? Do these people, do these fast food workers deserve uh, $15 an hour? They can't even get my order right. What do they deserve? I hear it happens all the time. We never have, when we have a conversation about $15 an hour minimum wage or paying people a living wage, the conversation never ends uh, with dollars and cents, with pluses and minuses. It always ends up with that person over there doesn't deserve $15 an hour, and that's my final argument. Just cannibalizing ourselves. It's incredible, man. Incredible. 
Appreciate the comment, Amanda. My homie Brian, he comments in. He says, long way from the flames. Big props, my dude. I appreciate that, Brian. I appreciate you listening in uh, as well. And you can get your comment in uh, Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. All different types of stuff. Even if you are watching this on the replay, make sure you leave your comments. I'd love to hear um, from you. All hail the king. She comments back in, by the way, and says, and then they want to add sending kids back to school on top of that. So that ties into my next story, which I'll transition into now. Uh, my crazy COVID stat of the day, less of a stat, like I said, and more of a story today. And, and some of you might've heard about this, but eight more players and two coaches have tested positive for the coronavirus on Monday. Players uh, playing for the Miami Marlins, that's an MLB baseball team, in case anyone was a little confused there. Uh, now, anyway, here's the interesting thing about these 14 members of the team and the staff that have been infected with coronavirus, as we learned today. 14 members of the same Major League Baseball team. There's a few things to discuss here. First, um, unlike basketball, the NBA and hockey in the NHL that opted to sort of create, not sort of, they did. They created these bubbles in, in one city um, where they would have all their players, all the staff, everyone who's going to be working as a part of the tournament uh, live within the bubble. You can't go in and out. Uh, in and out of the bubble, as Lou Williams learned this weekend, even uh, to get Lou Williams lemon pepper wings. Can't do that. Anyway, there's, these rules are real strict for a reason. The rules are strict because this is a way of being able to, at least they think, this is going to be a way of being able to continue to play sports while keeping everyone involved in the sport under one roof and continually tested to ensure that nobody is spreading anything to anybody. It's not the perfect idea, um, but it is something that somewhat works. Baseball, on the other hand, it had a long back-and-forth discussion about whether or not they're even going to have a season, decided that this was going to be their model. They were just going to travel all over the country um, and do their schedule otherwise pretty normally, uh, as they no or as they normally would. Kind of trying to keep things close to everyone's home stadium so you don't travel too much. But that's what they agreed upon. And they were asking for something like what we found out today to happen. Because you're constantly exposing, you're constantly giving the chance, rather, for players to expose themselves to others uh, who have the coronavirus and to expose that to other players on the same team as well. Now, the interesting thing about the Miami Marlins uh, contracting all these or having all these positive tests are that they played a weekend series with the Philadelphia Phillies, the city where I once used to live for a long time. Um now, that was interesting enough for me because now the the Phillies can't play their next game against, uh, I think it's the Yankees, uh, because they now have to be thoroughly tested and vetted to make sure that they didn't get any corona on them from any of the Miami Marlins players in the weekend series from before. Oh, but it gets better, folks. Because what we also found out was that the Miami Marlins, before they played their final game against the Phillies this weekend knew ahead of the game that members of their team had tested positive. They knew this. And instead of a doctor, instead of a league official, instead of a, vir a viral disease expert, anything else like that making the decision about whether the Miami Marlins should continue to play the Philadelphia Phillies, instead of that decision being made by a professional, it was instead made by the team. They had a group chat about this. This is classic. They had a group chat, and, and uh, one of the team leaders, Miguel Rojas, said, let's do it, in so many words, not verbatim, but in so many words, he said, let's do it, let's play. I know, look, I know this is the situation. I know Didi Gregorius, who's a, who's a player on our team, a shortstop on our team, uh, is basically immunocompromised. I know that, but we're going to play anyway. 
I mean, this is incredible to me that we still, at this point in the process here in this country, have not accepted that, look, we can't do this right now. We are walking on eggshells with this bubble idea, right? This bubble concept that everyone can play within the same, you know, sort of space. We can continually test. We can continually keep people safe. That is a walking on eggshells type of idea because all you need is one positive test in the wrong spot. That's it. And you're done. You're done. And that to me is scary. That's very scary that we're that close. We want to set up a system where in which we are that close to shutting it all down. And the reason why I was mentioning the schools, the, the schools are the very much so the same way. If we think that th that they exist in some kind of bubble or that the risk to the kids themselves or those that are around the kids is so relatively low that opening up schools is an act is actually a good idea, then you are sorely and sadly mistaken. It takes one infection and you got to shut down the whole operation. The whole operation. Now, baseball hasn't come to this conclusion just yet. They have not said to themselves, look, we need to shut it all down. This this positive test is evidence that we cannot do we cannot sustain this because if if it happens again then that's it that's my estimation if this happens again if you have another team that has ten plus cases or they can't play the next day um, or they've already played and and we don't know who they've infected like this you got to shut it all down I think you should shut it down now but they're definitely going to have to shut it down if it happens again so what do you think kids in a school are going to be able to do? Uh, what precautions do you think school children are going to be able to uh, are, are going to employ as a way of staying safe? Is your answer none? Because that's what it should be. But it just drives me wild. But again, I have to go back. Take a step back for just a second, okay? It's not just people who were just gung-ho about schools. We know that uh, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos probably couldn't spell school if you spotted her the S-C-H-O-O. -O. She probably couldn't pull it off. So this isn't about trying to, to make sure that kids get a, a proper education. We know that ship has sailed long ago. So what is this about? Personally, I think that pushing to return to these normal services, sports, school, things like that, will make Americans feel more comfortable about getting back to normal. And I've, I've mentioned this on the show before. I think normal is a very dangerous spot to be. If we, Even if we were to just go back to where we were at the beginning of the coronavirus, that's a dangerous place to be. I think as much as possible, there are individuals who would love for us to get back to normal. Even at the detriment, even at the cost of more American lives. If we can normalize sending our kids back to school, then now we'll have enough time to do things that we need to do as adults. You know how hard it is? I'm sure a lot of you do. I don't even have to ask this, but it is, I'm sure it's very difficult as a working adult to actually have your kids in the house at the same time while you're trying to make a living, especially if you have to make some dollars and cents. If you're not privileged enough to live in a home where maybe someone can stay home or that you can stay home for a large portion of your workday and still make enough to provide for your family. That's tough. But it also makes me think if I can just for just a second, like we live in a society, this is crazy to me, but we live in a society where it's actually more normal for us to spend our waking hours 
most of our waking hours away from our kids, trying to earn enough money to support our kids. That's the normal thing. So that now we have an environment where kids are forced to be at home with their parents. This is weird. This is, this is actually weird for us to be spending this much time with our kids because we're a part of a system that requires us to work so much. Whew. I mean, it's, it's incredible. We should be spending this kind of time with our kids. But it's wild to think, oh my goodness, I have to spend this much time with my kids and still do something that's financially relevant enough for, for us to survive. That's the second part is what creates the stress. Not necessarily being with the kids. I'm sure there's some kids out there that are pretty annoying. I wouldn't know. I don't have any kids. But I'm sure that gets annoying. But it's like we can't normalize that behavior because of the type of economic stress that we're normally under. And then you have, of course, the coronavirus adding to that. These are the conversations, these are the things that we have to think about. It's not about the su- the, the, the superficial uh, issues, like should we send kids back to school? That's a, that's a, to me, it's an absurd question. Should we send kids back to school? Do you understand how many infections we're still getting every day? Like there's so many, there's so many things that I can just go off on and say, of course we shouldn't be sending kids back to school. But that's a much more fun debate than saying, how can we change our societal systems uh, so that Americans, I'm sorry, so that parents rather don't have to spend so much of their waking energy and time and effort just making sure they have enough money to survive and more time in ensuring that they can spend it with their family, developing and growing the type of homes uh, and the type of environments that we all dream of. When are we going to have those conversations? Never mind when is is school going to open up. Either it is or it's not, right? That decision doesn't seem to be uh, based on anything informative. So let's focus on something else here. It's insane. It's just just insane to me. Absolutely insane. But as for baseball, uh, which oftentimes, like I said, sports can oftentimes be a reflection of, I think, other things that we want to do in society. I think baseball is done for for this year. Because they're the only sport that tried to do things the way that things normally were. They even had cardboard cutouts of people that were sti- uh, that were sitting in the seats as a way of watching them. There's no way that you can protect yourself against this. It doesn't matter what configuration that we have. If we create bubbles, if we create sanitized environments, continual checking, testing, still not going to protect us from this. And so the sooner that we learn that, I think the more that we can sort of settle what life is really going to look like for us in the next couple of months and maybe maybe the next couple of years. But the more we have these distracting conversations, the less we can focus on addressing the core issues that got us here to this exact point. All right, so let me see. Let's see if we got any other comments here. I appreciate folks for uh, tuning in as well. You can leave it. Um, on the Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all that other good stuff. All hail the king one more time on the Instagram says it's too soon. Even dumps kids schools um, won't open. Uh, even Trump's <laughs> dumps. I like the way you said that. Even Trump's kids school won't open back up. Yeah, it's 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 a political, you know, sort of mess. 
It really is. But it, but it's a ridiculous conversation. I think as much as there's probably parents at home that really do want school to come back, they really do want to send their kids back to school as a way of them returning to some sort of normalcy, I think we're very, very, very far um, from that uh, as being a, a, a real thing. And if, by the way, there is a forced reopen of reopening of schools, which I do anticipate happening in about a month or so, uh, I think it would be advantageous for parents to think about alternative options here. I know economically or, or, or financially, Actually, that might not be the easiest thing, but if you're looking towards the future and, 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 and thinking about what could be the challenges over the next couple of months when it comes to your kids in schools, consider that to be one of them. You very well may, might have to make a decision about whether you're going to send your kid back to school just because the school is open doesn't mean the school is safe. Just because the school is open doesn't mean the school is safe. One more time, just because the school is open does not mean the school is safe. Look what happened to everything else in society that was considered reopened it was certainly open you could certainly go there but you could also certainly contract covid which is exactly what has happened all right that's all i got for today thank you very much i appreciate everyone for listening in um, make sure you check me out everywhere at Keaton D. Nichols. That's at Keaton D. Nichols. Um, the information on um, uh, my cash app, my Venmo, you can donate to the podcast directly if you so choose. Or check us out on Anchor. You can subscribe to the podcast. Be a monthly subscriber. That makes you extra cool. Um, as well. But either way, check us out. Uh, check out the old episodes in case you missed any. You can catch most of them on my Instagram. You can catch all of them uh, on the show page, A Nicholsworth on Anchor and on Spotify. Take us with you. Listen to them again and again. And I will see everyone on Wednesday. Stay, stay safe, everyone out there. And until next time, I'll see you then. Thanks for listening to A Nicholsworth. To hear more episodes and help support the podcast by giving a monthly donation, go to anchor.fm slash a Nicholsworth and click the support button. 